guys, welcome to Chef Grace's Place. Today, I have Michelle Thorne of Food Slate, which is one of my favorite podcasts. It's all about uh, all the issues surrounding food, as well as spotlighting some uh, important people in food. So how did you get started with food? Well, I started a long time ago. One of my biggest influences getting into food as a child. So my, 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 the way that food impacted my family and the health of my family was really the beginning catalyst because I was kind of a picky eater. I would always pick the fat off of lamb. I wouldn't eat milk. I wouldn't eat cheese. I just was really picky. And my mother would, um, like she would almost force me to eat stuff. And I hated that. Um, and then when I became a young adult, right after college, I had befriended a young lady who, she was 21, and she one night had hemorrhaged overnight and was in the hospital. And I thought, that's wrong. That should not be happening to somebody who's 21. Now, she mind a you, brain, I, a brain hemorrhage or? No, it was uh, like a uterine hemorrhage. I, and she didn't have kids or anything. And, you know, now knowing what I know, of course, there could be a lot of reasons behind that that have nothing to do with food. But I thought back then I was like, it must be the food. <laughs> and so I, I went down a very long and circuitous road to find answers. I started asking questions. Why is food like this? Or what about this? And I, I actually joined a CSA back then. And I'm a New Yorker. So I grew up in New York and at the time I was living in Harlem and there was a, a guy who had a CSA in the federal building in Harlem, like on the seventh floor. And he was like teaching these classes, blew my head wide open. Like I, that was the day that I really just... I just, I couldn't stop asking questions. I was like, why this? Why that? Why this? And you know, when somebody isn't telling the truth, like you, you, you know, a lie when you hear it. And so I began to poke holes in these lies that we were being told about food. And that really jump started this pathway for me. I just, I couldn't leave it alone. Because when somebody lies to you, what do you do? Nobody likes that. You well, also with your food, it's like, how can you trust anything ever again? Right. <laughs> you know? Right. So that was kind of the beginning for me. And from there, I got into teaching food, teaching vegetarian cooking. I became a chef. I became a private chef and a caterer. I facilitated juice fast and detox. I wrote a book about it. You know, I, I really just went... I don't know if I can say this, but balls to the wall, you know, really like I explored every diet that you could. I read every book. I just couldn't leave it alone. It was one of those things that would just bother me constantly because I don't like being lied to. I don't know anybody who likes being lied to, especially like you said, when it comes to things that we're consuming and we're putting into our body, we're consciously choosing to eat something then, you know, whatever's on the package, we have this public trust 
with food manufacturers come to find out they're full of it. They're full of it. Full of a lot of things. A lot of things that shouldn't be in there. That's what they're full of. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of those things I talk about on my podcast because they're dangerous. It's not even so much that, oh, they don't taste good or, you know, maybe they won't hurt you this much or that much. Like they're, they're carcinogenic. They'll kill you. That's why my podcast is called Food Slain, like food chain, but killing you. You know, the food supply chain is killing us slowly, but surely. Yeah, it is. It's also, uh, you know, I mean, I was listening to someone up like a lot of the your podcasts are like, this is what I was trying to say, but I didn't know how to say it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, which leads me to my next question. Do you have a background in like public speaking or something like professionally? Because you're a great speaker. Well, thank you. I, I don't have a um, public speaking background, but that's just something, you know, everybody's got something that they're good at. And I think that that's just something that, um, you know, for a long time, I was afraid to speak out. I was afraid to share my voice. So this podcast was also a catalyst for that. Interestingly enough, because I've been an educator for a really long time, I started teaching cooking classes in 2002. <laughs> and so that's almost 20 years. And getting up in front of people and teaching them something is probably one of the most challenging things that you can do because teaching is hard. But mostly teaching is entertainment because you're, you're, you're trying to teach someone something useful, but also keep their attention. I'm sure you've had plenty of teachers who just sound like wah, 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 right? Like they, and nobody retains anything. And I, I don't want that. Like I want people to have fun and learn something and take, take a recipe home and try it and, you know, circle back me and tell me how it went, how they modified it. And that's been a big part of my teaching style. And from teaching food, I've taught lots of other things. I actually, my, the first thing I ever taught, you want to know what it is? I taught swimming. I was a lifeguard for a really, really long time. And awesome. it was part of my job to teach kids how to swim. And I, I was so scared to teach people how to swim because people drown. Like that's a real thing. People drown and they die. And if you don't teach people the right thing to do, you know, that could be horrendous. So when I was 17, I was a lifeguard. I got my teaching certification then. And that really gave me the foundation for teaching and being okay with, you know, being an authority air quotes on something. And then I started teaching first aid, and then out of college, I started teaching food and food preparation. Every now and again, I teach game theory to youth and, you know, I do online classes. So I like teaching. And that's probably where my level of comfort speaking, you know, with a purpose or succinctly and, and writing, you know, some of these things comes from. So that's where that came from. That's cool. I, uh, before I started teaching, I was, I mean, like, I remember having to do like a, you know, like a, it was called the, 
I don't know, it was like a senior thesis, like he had to go do a presentation. And I probably, like, I've always been pretty monotone and got made fun of it for it for my whole life. <laughs> but because um, I have a twin and he's like a proper musician, like proper singer and everything. And uh, so, like, we're very yin and yang. But he, um, so I was just like, like he could barely hear me, you know what I mean? And the teacher was like, speak up, but I was just so nervous. And then I started teaching. And, um, you know, at first it was like really nerve wracking, but then I realized, you know, other things that happened before that when I realized, you know, like everybody's kind of just pretend like faking it to their making it when they're doing this. <laughs> so that kind of like, okay, like relaxed me a little bit. And then yeah. uh, I was able to talk in front of people. <laughs> yeah. And now you're talking on camera. Look at that. It's actually a little bit easier because there's nobody here. That's true. <laughs> You're here. Like, right. Right. It's also harder because I can't, you know, I can see your reaction, but I can't, like, if I'm doing, like, a cooking video, I'm yeah. like, but I've gotten, and also when I became a flight attendant, like, I had, I really had to start, like, talking to people. So, like, it helped a lot. Cool, cool thing to do with your life. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. I, I hear, I, th I thought, you know, if I could do it again, I would consider being a flight attendant, see the world, you know, visit really interesting places. I think it's probably better to like be friends with a flight attendant or marry one <laughs> this way. You can just use their flight benefits. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, uh, cause the, the only, you know, you get the jet lag and stuff. That's not fun. But, um, yeah. back to you so you live on a farm now as i saw <laughs> how did you make the transition um from going to the city out to the farm i've always been a nature lover my grandmother was a huge influence in my life in that respect she always was camping when i was young my sister and all my cousins and I, we all were camping throughout our teenage years up until we went to college. And so, you know, although I grew up in New York City and I love New York City for all the great things, you know, it's great to be in New York City when you're young and just out there, you know, hanging out and whatever. But uh, after a while, I just wanted a quieter life, you know, I, I just, and I, I think I realized that um, <laughs> this might sound really awful, but a lot of people suck, you know, <laughs> just, they just get on my nerves, you know, um, but there are a lot of great people out there too, you know, not to say that there aren't great people and that I haven't met some incredible people in cities um, or, or in rural parts of where, where I've lived. I, and I've been lucky. I've lived in a lot of really unique places and situations. And, you know, I've just gotten farther and farther and farther away from cities. Even though right here, I've got all this road noise. You think I'm like right in the city. Um, but yeah, I, I chose to become a farmer. It was just the next thing. It was the next logical progression for me 
because food was so important that I needed to understand how to grow my own. And so I did. And I started that in 2012. It's the first time I ever had a garden. At the time, I was living on a boat in one of the most beautiful places in California. And I never looked back. I thought I will forever have a garden at least. And then in the last couple of years, I just, I don't know what happened, Grace. <laughs> I think, you know, I think food slain happened and I started really getting serious about growing so much of my food that I didn't have to rely on the food supply chain for more than 50% of my food. And I, I haven't done the numbers and I'll be honest with you. I haven't really done the numbers oops, of, of how much of my food I'm able to grow in a year, but um, it's a lot, you know, I, I preserve a lot of my food. I can, I dehydrate, I freeze, I make a bunch of stuff. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a livestock farmer. So, you know, I raise small livestock. I raise birds. I raise turkey, quail, chickens, ducks, all for food. And, you know, I feel more comfortable, even though it is a difficult road. And people ask, my mother asked me this just recently, and I was talking to her about um, you know, we have to send animals to freezer camp. That's what we call it, you know? And, uh, you know, she's like, well, I mean, how does, how do you feel about that? Like, isn't that hard? You know, because she, she could never do that. And most people could never do that. We're so far removed from our food supply chain. Back in the day, our ancestors raised backyard chickens and they would slaughter their chickens, right? For food. That's just what they did. Now we go to the grocery store, we buy our chicken in a styrofoam package covered in plastic, right? And that's how we consume our meat, which in my opinion is much more inhumane than what I'm choosing, which is to raise my own chickens, send my chickens to freezer camp and know that the chickens that I've raised aren't injected with salt solution, sodium nitrates. They're not, they're not fed a diet of corn and soy. They live a great life. They are slaughtered humanely. Like I could go on and on, like nothing goes to waste, you know? And um, I talk about a lot of that in my episode in season one called My Beef with Chicken. I even talked about it in a recent video on my YouTube channel because Tyson, the one of the largest chicken uh, producers in the state, in the country, um, just recalled 9 million pounds of chicken for listeria poisoning. Listeria, like crazy. One person died, two people got sick. Like it's, it's just, and it, it doesn't end. It just doesn't end because of the way that commercially produced chickens are raised from their breeding the, the type of breed of chicken is really unhealthy because they get so fat so fast that their bones can't handle the weight gain. They hardly ever move. They never see a blade of grass. They don't get to eat bugs. In fact, they eat, they eat pork for dinner. A lot of those chickens, factory farm chickens, 
they eat corn and soy and all the GMOs and they're raised for six weeks, they're slaughtered, they go to a chicken processing plant, they get packaged up and shipped however many hundreds of miles to your local grocery store or distributor even, and then it goes to your local grocery store and then you buy it, you know, and people don't think about, even though a lot of these companies have, and I say air quotes, sustainability reports, there's nothing sustainable about what they're doing. Really nothing because they're, they're contaminating the water tables and the soil. They're using inputs like GMO corn and soy. They're using other meat byproducts that chickens are eating. They're using antibiotics. These chickens, even though the USDA can legally allow them to say that they're natural, they never see a blade of grass. They never see the sunshine. They walk around in their feces all day. Like it, if you've, I I could go. That's the thing, like people, you know, people are, especially with the, you know, the fun, all these new, like you call them uh, voodoo science or, you know, pseudosciences, right? Everyone's like, oh, it's natural. And I'm like, yeah, "Yeah, but arsenic is natural. Like (laughs) the feces that they're walking around in, that's natural. Like you gotta, even the term organic, right? Made from carbon, right? So like we got a legally term, are we using a legal term? Are we using this? Uh, there's that's just an example of how they're going to use that those words to just confuse you and you know bend the truth and things like that um so in comparison though with your chickens how long do they live and um you know i think breed it depends on the breed right there there are broiler chickens, which are similar to the broiler chickens that you'll find in the grocery store. They're called a Cornish cross. And I've raised several different kinds of chickens. Uh, I've raised Cornish cross on pasture, right? And they do get heavy and they do get like, you know, these bigger breasts and bigger thighs, their bones are shorter because they, they have less time to develop and mature before they start putting on all that weight, but I don't feed them corn or soy. So they gain weight more slowly. So it could be eight weeks. It could be 10 weeks. It could be 12 weeks. You know, I've raised freedom rangers, which is a heritage breed, which their bones are longer. Like it's a, it's remarkable to kind of see how, you know, the anatomy of chicken, you know, when you're going through this process, their meat is different. The flavor of their meat is different. If you've never raised, I mean, if you've never tasted like a freshly harvested chicken, or chicken that was really truly raised on pasture, right? Um, I mean, I don't think you've really had chicken, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I um, I switched from like one of the things like I refused to give up when I like during the pandemic, even though I lost my job, was uh, I kept my butcher box subscription. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and. I remember the first time I got that in the mail, having the chicken from that. And before that, I was, you know, I was always trying to get like better quality meat, but um, I had to live with uh, my mom for a little bit and uh, they just bought. We all do at some point in our adulthood. Yep. (laughs) um, So 
um, her boyfriend was loved this one grocery store where you can get like discount meat and stuff like that. And he brought home these uh, chicken breasts that were like three pounds each. And I was like, I I was like, I don't want to eat that. Like, there's no way that's healthy. <laughs> like, and I remember like him cooking it, and you could see this. There were like spaces between the meat, like the muscle fibers, because of how much like water was in it. It was insane. They have to. They have to do that. They have to pump them with salt solutions. Ask me why. Why? Because <laughs> what chicken or meat does after you, let's say you, you butcher it off the animal, is it releases like plasma and, and water, right? Like just like our bodies are mostly water, like there's water in the muscle tissue. And so it begins to leak out. It leaches out naturally. And so they pump the, the salt solutions in to keep the meat from doing that too quickly. They do it to um, minimize bacteria. They do it to keep the meat fresher longer because it has to have a shelf life, right? It's being shipped from, you know, let's say Greeley, Colorado, to New Jersey, that takes a couple of days, you know, on ice, not frozen, right? So, you know, they have to do it if they want people to buy it, because like I said, we buy with our eyes. So if we go into the grocery store and we visually see a package of chicken breasts that has pools of water, you know, that pink, slimy yeah. stuff in it, who's going to buy it? nobody and yeah that's the one thing i also try to talk about too is like those factory farmed animals they have a terrible life but like you know someone who's raising livestock like you they have they have one bad day and we all have one bad day so it's just like i would much rather eat the thing that had one bad day than a terrible yeah. And, and most farmers, most small farmers that I know, every farmer that I've ever interviewed on my podcast cares so deeply about their animals. They care so deeply about them. They care about their happiness. They care about their health and their well-being. They care about the quality of food and feed that they're able to provide for them. They care about how much pasture they get to eat. They care about the quality of the pasture that they eat. I mean, it, it's just endless, the endless concern for animals. Why? Because that animal at the end of the day is a food source, not just for themselves and their families, but for other people. And so in the real market, because you know, I talk about economics on my podcast too, in the real free market, there's competition. And when there's true competition, that means people have choice, right? Competition determines pricing in a lot of ways, unless there's collusion, <laughs> you know, and corporate control. But when there's true competition, if I'm raising chickens, say for public consumption, and I'm selling to my customers, I know that my customer has a choice to go buy from somebody else. And so I want to make sure that I have 
a value proposition that meets a standard that I'm proud of, that if they ask me any questions that I can provide those answers to them because I know they can choose somebody else. And raising livestock is a lot of work. There's a lot of farmers that don't make money doing it. You know, it's not a glamorous thing to do really, but it's, to me, it's the trade-off is I don't make a lot of money farming. I just don't, you know, but the trade-off is, is that I get extreme value in the outcome. You know, when I, when I go into my freezer and I take one of those turkey sausages that I made from the turkeys that I raised and deboned and made my sausage, put it in the freezer with such care with the herbs that I grew and the garlic that I grew and like all of these things. Like to me, it's a very special breakfast. (laughs) At that point, I get to say, oh yeah, I'm having turkey sausage today with no nitrates in it. Thank you very much. Do you sell any of that to the public? Hell no. I keep that turkey <laughs> sausage just for me. No. It's your own turkey sausage. No, I, you know, at some point, maybe, I mean, I'm such a small, small, small operation. And it takes so many years to kind of figure out systems and process and to make it cost effective and to be profitable. I mean, most farmers spend the first four or five years just trying to get their rotational grazing down and get their water irrigation and, you know, grow their soil. You know, it's, it's a long process, but that this is why there's commercial farming. This is why there are monocrops in the world, because if, if, if there wasn't such a demand for, for grilled chicken breasts, let's just take one product when this whole like diet craze started, everybody was like, oh, got to eat grilled chicken breast. <laughs> breast, right? If there wasn't such a demand for grilled chicken breasts, not only the demand for it, but the price is so low. These commercial operations can sell their chicken at 99 cents a pound. Why? Because they're doing 20,000 chickens every six weeks because they have economies of scale. They have the benefit of that. And so they can push out all this cheap meat into the market. Who cares if it's unhealthy? It's cheap, right? People need to eat. And that is a real thing. Not everybody can afford to pay. I, I, I knew one farmer who, you know, the first round of chickens that they did, they had to charge $7.50 a pound for a three or four pound chicken. Can you imagine paying $25 for one chicken? No, not. A lot of people can't, (laughs) right? It just, it just, it's just not something that they're willing to do, but that's what it costs. You know, if they're going to make any money on it, it's a rough road because small farmers don't have, they can't leverage economies of scale. So you're buying feed at retail, you're buying implements at retail, you're buying livestock at retail. You know, you don't, you just don't have the benefit of economies of scale. So 
So it's difficult. And I understand that not everybody can do it. Not everybody's going to make money doing it. In fact, there's, you know, there's a podcast in my head about whether small farming is even a good idea from a profitability standpoint. Environmentally, it's great, right? Farmers are improving soil for the most part, small farmers, because they're, they've got animals on pasture and that's improving the soil, that's sequestering carbon. Like environmentally, if they're doing the right thing with their waste, great. But is it economically sustainable? And for a lot of people, they have to supplement their income, whether it's through an off-farm job or they, their spouse works or they have to sell other products off of their farm in order to make enough, you know, money to sustain the operation. Like it's, it's, a, it's tough. It's tough. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. I, I always, I wonder about that, but I also, you know, when you look at the food system, it's just like, you see everybody getting hacked. Like it can't go on the way it's going on. And also you have to think that, you know, like, corn, wheat, and soy, they're all subsidized by the government. So it's kind of like, there's got to be a way to like legislate some incentive into <laughs> having uh, some small farms like that, like it has well, to be ideas, because I've thought about this and have argued this point for many, many years. And uh, I haven't come up with an answer. So I can't wait to hear what you have to say about that. <laughs> I mean, I think, kind of like, I think there's just, you know, just like the diets, like there's not really one answer for every, especially like every place. America's huge, right? But I don't, and I don't think we're ever really going to get rid of the industrial farming system, but I think there's got to be a way for, you know, at least local municipalities and things like that to have some sort of community agriculture because it's just I mean you would think so you would think so I'm not hopeful I'm not ho I, I mean okay that's not true I am hopeful we have all these parks and recs departments instead of grass let's plant some food <laughs> you know in the 1940s after world war or during the war there was a thing called Victory Gardens where people were basically commissioned or subsidized by the government to grow food in their front yard for the soldiers. And everybody got to gardening in their front yard and they were, they were Victory Gardens. And it was great because most of that food did go to feed the military that was going off to war. And it was awesome. But why doesn't that work? Why doesn't that work now? You have any idea? And we wouldn't need to buy food at the big box store. Well, we wouldn't need to buy as much of it. And then they wouldn't get our money. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But there's also these like regulations. And I talked about it with um, one of my uh, guests, James McWalter. And he's, he's doing this like, you know, trying to make the food system sustainable, which is a great idea. I wish we could do it. But I think one of the challenges is... or there are many challenges, but I think one of the most a difficult challenges to overcome is the regulatory government regulations uh, regarding food is um, 
how do I say this nicely? <laughs> it's complicated. It's complicated. In a lot of ways, it's corrupt because they're colluding with a lot of these corporate interests to control our food. So they're giving them the right to contaminate rivers and streams and communities by dumping their waste. You know, I mean, there's just story after story after story. You know, I could go on and on about that. But, you know, when you start talking about people growing their own food, you know, what, what does it really take when you really, really think about it? It takes time, which, okay, you know, in economics, there's a thing, time versus money. There's trade-offs. So if you have to spend a lot of time growing your food, then you can't spend your time trading it for money at a job. If you can't have money coming in, then you have a difficult time feeding your family, even if you're trying to grow food because growing food takes an entire season, anywhere from 20 to 100 days to grow any amount of food, right? For your family. It's complicated. There's no easy fix. Sure, people can backyard garden, they can keep backyard chickens, get their eggs, you know, but the majority of people rely on the grocery store, which we all saw in 2020 is vulnerable to supply chain disruptions. It left people food insecure. It left hundreds of thousands of people food insecure. It, 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 it just, you know, it's complicated because of the way that things have been put in place that we rely on the grocery store for food. The best thing that came out of COVID with the food supply chain is that small farmers came to the rescue. A lot of them had spaces open in their CSAs. And for anybody listening or watching, a CSA is a community supported agriculture group, which a lot of farmers, you know, that's a part of their profitable business models. They run CSAs, they grow food for people for an entire season. People buy in at the beginning of the season, so they're getting cash up front. You know, and and it's a it's a great model. I did a an episode on Booker T. Watley, who's kind of like the grandfather of the CSA model and making money on a small scale you know, farm operation. And so it's, it's doable, but everybody can't do it. But what everybody can do is they can support a small farmer that is within 20 miles of where they live. That's true. And I also think too, um, just like, you know, in all different types of research, the initial stages are very expensive, right? <laughs> but the more we can get people supporting these small farms, the more they can kind of research and experiment and maybe figure out ways to do it better, you know, and figure out the problems that I don't have the answers to, you know? It's complicated. It really is. And I empathize with people because people do want answers. Now more than ever, people want to be close to their food. They want to know what's happening with their food. You yourself, you're a chef. You're, you're showing people how to take ingredients and transform them into something delicious, right? And something, you know, healthy or not, you're, you're teaching them ways to do it. So the, the first thing people do is they go to the grocery store to look for those ingredients. They want to find those ingredients so that they can make whatever you're showing them, you know, to make. 
where else are they going to go? I don't know any local farmers that grow flour or wheat to make flour. That was one of the things that uh, when I first got like started learning more about growing my own food was in college and it was a chapter of the slow food movement it mm -hmm. was, um, in my college and I was the only pastry student there. And I said, well, where are we getting the wheat from? And they all laughed. And as if it was impossible to get organically grown wheat in America <laughs> at the time. Yeah. I mean, it is hard. It's very you know, hard. I, I did an episode on wheat. <laughs> yeah, it's very hard. It uh, is hard. And, and it's very land intensive, you know, growing grains. It's, it's, you know, for the, for a five pound bag of flour. I mean, I don't know how many acres it takes to grow wheat. And then the process of, you know, drying the wheat and hulling the wheat, I'm getting attacked out here by the bugs, but um, you know, it's, it's very intense, an intense process. And although I did, I did interview Bob Klein, who is the founder of a company that uh, provides like really from, from farm to table style wheat, like traceable wheat grain. Fascinating. You should definitely listen to that episode. Um, I'm blanking on the name of the company, but it's, he, he's in California. And I think it was season four. I, uh, episode. I don't, I don't remember, but you can check it out. Bob Klein, um, just fascinating stuff. So there, there are companies and people that are trying to solve some of these problems. The interesting thing is talking to people like Bob Klein, talking to, I talked to another um, scientist about wheat and how wheat gets separated and you know, we're not getting the whole truth with wheat because people say whole grains. What does that even mean? You know, like, are we are we really getting whole grain? The answer is no, we're not. You know, it's another ruse. But, um, you know, it's, it's just fascinating that there are a lot of people out there trying to do the work, trying to dig to the bottom, right? Pull back the curtain and really see what's going on. And with every episode just about, it's the same story. It's the same players. It's the same sentiment. Like there's this facade that the public sees in our food products, but there's something underneath that, that we're not being told, but there's some marketing campaign that's, you know, tied into our, our pain points, right? Whether it's, we want low sugar or we want, less fat, or we want fewer carbs, or we want, you know, whatever our pain points are, these marketing companies, they're geniuses. They know exactly what to say to us. They know what colors to use. They know where to position things. They, they got the jingles, you know, to get us thinking about it in the middle of our, you know, slumber. Out of so all the issues that you've discussed so far, which one was like the most surprising to you? Episite corn. There's no doubt about it. I was, I mean, they're all really interesting. What is that? Oh, Lord. Uh oh. <laughs> You've got to listen to that. So the episode is called No Children of This Corn. 
Okay. Which kind of gives you a hint. I laughed at the title. What <laughs> but epicyte corn, it, it was a genetically modified variety of corn that, oh man, I mean, it's so diabolical. It produces antibodies when you consume it. Anybody who consumes this variety of corn produces these antibodies, um, or they're called plantibodies, right? There, there are these things that the food itself does this chemical reaction in your body and produces antibodies and these things that kill sperm in, in men and women. So, you know, we can speculate that it is a population control uh, because corn is in everything. <laughs> birth rates are down, um, like historically low. Well, birth rates are at the point where we're not replacing the current population. Uh, and, and, you know, dare I say, dare I speculate that things like epicyte corn have something to do with that because they basically render anyone who eats it infertile. How? Let that sit with you for a minute. How much of this do you have to eat though? I mean, I don't, I, I don't know the answer to that, but if you think about the pervasiveness of corn and corn byproducts, in the United States and around the world, you don't, it's not like we're sitting around eating, you know, corn on the cob every day. If you're eating crackers, you're eating, you know, breaded. Well, so like, I mean, we eat a lot of corn, but people don't realize like that corn is grown in a giant monoculture field, probably somewhere. And that wind goes across that field <laughs> and brings those genetics to the corn that's next to it that, you know, then they fertilize that corn and then you're not getting that variety of corn You're getting some crazy hybrid that might still have these same dangerous properties. And then before you know it, all the corn it has this genetic trait that's not great for humans. So that's, uh, put my tinfoil hat back on for that one. <laughs> you're going to need it. Now that that was by far the episode that I you know just disgusts me. It just really disgusts me that there's that level of deception that people don't even know feeding it to their children. I mean, there's so many. The baby food episode was mind blowing. That we're feeding arsenic and mercury lace products to our babies. Yep. Like, you know, there's so many, you know, my season finale coming up is going to be on microplastics and anybody who's going to bring that up. <laughs> yeah. You know, like anybody who eats seafood kind of knows about microplastics, but this episode coming up, I mean, you wouldn't even believe where these microplastics are being found in our food supply. It's well, not just the microplastics, but then um, I think they're called phthalates, maybe that are uh, found in plastics. And you don't, you don't even have to, like, it doesn't even have to be in fish or anything like even just 
they were talking about the the tubes of like coming from like if you have a dairy farm right and you're using the tubes to milk the cows just the milk passing through those tubes is picking up these phthalates and these chemicals that are passing onto the milk and then you drink it and it's fucking with the endocrine system so bad that like fetuses aren't developing correctly so <laughs> because the, you know, those tubes are heated because they're they're ultra pasteurizing they have to ultra pasteurize that milk to make it safe for public consumption which is why you know during the pandemic they had to like dump all that stuff all that milk was going to go bad they couldn't pasteurize it. like the, you know the food the food supply chain is set up to fail and it's it's really depressing because we all need to eat every day several times a day to meet our caloric demand for our bodies to function properly. And if we're not just eating like food, right? What we think is healthy food, but we're eating food that's laced with chemicals, that's laced with endocrine disruptors, that's laced with chemical fertilizers, that's laced with this, with that, with artificial flavors, artificial colors. It's the bioaccumulation that begins to break the body down. It's not just that, oh, well, you know, it doesn't really matter if I have a corn dog or I have a corn muffin that's made from GMO. Like, not a big deal. Like, one corn muffin's not going to kill me. No, one corn muffin isn't going to kill you. That's true. But it's the bioaccumulation of corn, genetically modified corn, or the bioaccumulation of arsenic from apple juice and rice products. It's the bioaccumulation of nitrates from foods and meats that we're eating like it's it's that's the problem is that it's bioaccumulating the mercury is bioaccumulating the chemicals all of those things and at some point you know I did an episode on dog food because dogs bodies are even way more sensitive dogs and cats really pets their bodies are much more sensitive to a lot of these you know additives than our bodies are And our dogs and cats are dying from kidney disease and cancer at an exponential rate because a lot of these byproducts that don't make it into the human grade food get passed on to the dogs and the cats, right? So they're getting a concentrated because they're eating twice a day. And so it's bioaccumulating in our pets and it's killing them. You know, it's, it's just crazy. Yeah. We got I'm glad I wrote stuff down because we, I knew we were going to get off on tangents. <laughs> sorry. I'm so sorry. I feel like, I, you know, that's why I have a podcast because I, I feel like I could talk about this stuff all the time, you know, and I appreciate you reaching out to me because I don't really get an opportunity to just kind of go off the cuff, right? I don't get interviewed or asked to be interviewed a lot. I do most of the interviewing on my podcast. And so when I get a chance to kind of freestyle, it just, you know, you can, you can hear the assimilation of all of the episodes kind of coming together and the things that I've learned by doing this podcast and how they, at some point, you know, there's all of this, there's this convergence of knowledge that you start to see, you start to put things together and you're just like piecing it all together. And, and so I'm, I'm really grateful for the opportunity to, to like verbally outwardly assimilate that not in a script, not in an episode, but just kind of 
you know, off the cuff. So thanks. Thanks. Thanks for coming on because it's, uh, I think it helps people see the big picture, you know, and with, you know, we would just name so many things going on <laughs> and it's very overwhelming and it's very hard to, well, I got to worry about this. Well, I got to be worried about that. And it's yeah. like, well, I kind of want to show people, well, this is how you kind of generally worry about it all without it, like, hope without, you know, you just want to stay inside and go like this, you know? <laughs> Sometimes I just, I can't even go to the grocery store. It's hard to eat, even. Hard. You know, I become a prisoner of what I know. And, and you know, I know people get overwhelmed with decision fatigue when, it, you know, then they're like, okay, well, what am I supposed to eat? That's a great question. I don't have the answer to that. At some point we have to make decisions to, okay, well, am I going to eat a little bit of poison or a lot of poison, <laughs> poison, you know? Um, but that's just the way it is. It sounds like, you know, a lot of the decisions we make in America tend to be what's the lesser evil. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's still evil. Still evil. I say, yeah. Yep. Um, I'm just looking at the questions I wrote now. I think. Oh, so what? What is next with your podcast? Because I did listen to your last episode, and I don't want you to stop doing the podcast. <laughs> Aw, thank you for listening. Yeah, the last episode, the JBS, the pork episode. Yeah. Um. Yeah, you know, I I need to figure out a healthy balance. I love doing my podcast. There's no doubt about it. So for anybody who's listening, who is subscribed to my podcast, the podcast isn't going away. There's still so much to talk about. But I feel like I'm a little bit in um, kind of a vortex where I have so many things personally happening that require my focus. So for example, a couple of weeks ago, we had this extreme heat event. <laughs> I, I'm in Oregon, in Western Oregon, and it was 110, 115 degrees. And when you have livestock or you're growing crops, I know so many farmers that lost hundreds of animals. They lost their whole, you know, 80% of their crops in that one or two days where it was just unbearably hot. And so I lost animals. I had to reconfigure some things. I recently moved. Like I, I, I have an off farm job that takes my time, you know, requires me to put in a certain amount of hours every week. And, you know, I was, I was getting to this point where I was like, oh, I have to record my podcast. And it was like Thursday. <laughs> And I, I just, it, it became overwhelming. And because it's not my primary source of income, I have to keep things real. I have to keep things realistic. Like I have to reorganize my time. And so I'm so glad to be doing this with you and, and hearing your feedback that there are people listening. And I realize that there are people listening. And I'm so, so grateful for that. It just... It makes me want to do it, continue doing it 
every week. I wish I could just sit around and have my bills pay themselves, to be honest. But doesn't everybody? Time to get a sugar daddy. <laughs> so um, I don't know yet. And that's just me being honest and transparent. I don't, I don't know yet. But I know that, you know, with the season finale coming up, that's episode 70. And I've been knocking them out, you know, every week with maybe a week or two break in between seasons. And I'm a little exhausted. I, I really would like to be able to monetize them a little bit more. Um, but, you know, on the other hand, I would like to just be doing it just to be doing it. You know, if people want to buy me a cup of coffee, they can buy me a cup of coffee. Buymeacoffee.com forward slash food slate. If they want to be a patron, like be a patron. You want to make a donation, make a donation. You want to buy something from my website, my book or whatever. Great. Awesome. I, I hate to have it be a requirement because I think when things rely on income, it becomes, the focus becomes the generation of income right. as opposed to the passion of discovery. And so I don't, I don't want to go down that road. I feel like I'm in the exact same boat as you. <laughs> um, and I'm, I am starting a new job. So it's going to be like, you know, who knows? Um, I tried to get as many recorded before I started just because I don't even know when the next one, you know, the next opportunity is going to be to record one. Right. But, um, you know, I don't, I'm not making any money. And, um, <laughs> It's, uh, but I love, I love to do it because I love to, to learn new things, number one, but also, um, I was amazed when I was flying as a flight attendant, how little people knew about, and I was always the person on the crew that would, um, have like a list of five restaurants I was going to try to go to that night and like, you know, and, uh, really knew a lot about food, but, um, so many people, I remember going to one place and the person was like, oh, it's so expensive here. I should have just went to McDonald's when I'm in, we're in Paris, France. Right. What are you doing? <laughs> you get McDonald's at home. Exactly. So uh, I was like, there's clearly a need for education here. <laughs> and, um, and not just that, but even, uh, you know, I talked to, my, I have a, you know, I mentioned I have a twin brother and even visit, like talking to him about food, we're, we're twins, we're two minutes apart, um, two minutes. Oh, wow. apart. And, um, who's older? I am. Well, that's all I got on him now. Cause he's taller yeah. than me now, <laughs> but, uh, you know, just the lack of knowledge that I feel like I take for granted a lot because I just. I don't know that other people don't know it. Just how there's a lot of things that if you don't know, you don't know. Like you, you know, you definitely, you know, everything I look up on, like like my Instagram and stuff, like that's all food related for the most part. So I come in like these, you know, foodie echo chambers. <laughs> I'm like, oh, everybody knows this stuff. And then I get surprised when people don't. So I'm like, oh, this is really important 
to get out there. And I think, especially with your podcast, um, a lot of the content is, uh, I guess it would be like evergreen content, right? So like, it's not, a lot of it is like, oh, this just happened and, you know, you can listen to it. But this, the story you had about the, um, the second man of color to get a patent for that corn invention, I'm blanking on his name, but Henry Blair. Henry Blair. I was like, where else am I going to hear that content? You know? And I mean, it's out there, to be honest. You know, it, it's out there. Sometimes you have to dig for it a little bit, but, you know, I like history. I like learning about farming and farmers. I like economics. You know, I like learning about you know, what, what, what is the reality that's happening, right? A lot of us, we just go through life because we just got to get through the day. There's just stuff we got to do. Who has time to ask about Henry Blair, you know, (laughs) or Epicite Corn or JBS, you know, like people don't have the time, the mental space, it will collapse their worldview if they listen to what I have to say or what you have to say, it will just collapse their worldview. And people don't want that. They want to be, there's enough bullshit going on in the world to just make them feel awful about life. And if you have to think about, you know, why the chicken on your plate is going to exacerbate your high blood pressure or your diabetes, or, or whatever, it just, they'd rather just leave it up to the doctor to figure it out and give them the pharmaceuticals to take care of the symptoms, right? The, cause that's what they do. The medications, yeah. they just treat the symptoms. They don't treat the root cause, you know, I mean, I don't know. Speaking of it, that, it, though, um, I just interviewed a guy that you might like to interview. Um, his name is, he goes by Chef Dr. Mike. <laughs> and he just started a program at the University of Montana called Culinary Medicine. Um, that's Please all. Drop that, drop that connect for me. I will. Connect. That sounds really interesting. Or really, I'm very excited about that podcast. It was, he was very interesting. And I'm sure they you know, he's, I want to take the course, I think. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it is, it is very interesting because, you know, Hippocrates, you know, let food be by medicine. That's, that's how this all started for a lot of people. People want the benefit of food that has the nutrition in it that we're being told is in it. Right. We, we want that. We want to eat fresh fruits and vegetables that aren't contaminated or genetically modified. We want to eat things that are ripe and not, you know, shipped halfway across the world and then artificially ripened because they don't have the nutrient. That's the other thing with farming that you really get to see in real time and understand is how the ripening of food works and why it's so essential to the 
the nutritional density of the food, right? Like you could eat a tomato that's grown in Mexico and that could be a good tomato, you know, in the middle of December, probably not. But then you eat a tomato that's grown maybe by your neighbor in your backyard and you eat it at its peak of ripeness right when you pull it off the vine. It's the best tomato you've ever had because you're tasting the natural sugars, you're tasting the lycopene, you're tasting the beta carotene in, in the skins. And, you know, it, it's just a different dynamic, you know? It's just a New Jersey girl. I remember, you know, that changed my yeah. life. <laughs> <laughs> totally. But that's uh, just joined me over here. He's coming over. He's over there. Is he there found me. That I haven't asked you that you want to talk about. Oh, gosh. I mean, we could go on for hours, couldn't we? <laughs> the two of us, you know. <clears throat> Um, you know, I, I, I did interview an, another young chef who was also gardening and we started talking about the restaurant industry and the waste in the restaurant industry and the, you know, how restaurants, even though they make it look lovely on the plate, a lot of them are getting them from places like Cisco and, you know, food inputs aren't really coming from, you know, small farms. So, you know, I mean, there's, there's, there's enough to talk about. We could do this again. Yeah. You know, we could precious. do this again. The farmer, I watched, I listened to that one. That yeah. one was the foodie. It's just the foodie. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It was uh, interesting talking to her because we had a lot in common. So here's an, another question. So, how do you know the RZA? That's the real question. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I got my boyfriend <laughs> to, uh, my boyfriend, I was so, like, she interviewed the RZA. Like, <laughs> he was so excited. Yeah. Well, so my my career began as a graphic designer out of college, and I was an entrepreneur, young entrepreneur. I owned my own graphic design agency, and I was designing albums, album covers, and you know, working in the music industry for a really long time as a graphic designer. As, you know. I mean, I'm going to I'm going to drop a name right now <laughs> that you may or may not know if you haven't looked at my LinkedIn profile. But uh, my graphic design studio is called Stereotype. And I designed the Notorious B.I.G. double album Life After Death. What? <laughs> so, my boy, I had a lot of you so excited. I, yeah, <laughs> I had a lot of connections in the music industry. And one of my really good friends, like my friend from elementary school who works for a record label, um, we were talking and he was like, oh, my God, I love your podcast. And he was like, you need to interview some like some celebrities and whatnot and this, that and the other thing. And he was like, you know, the Riz is vegan. And I was like, that's right. The Riz is vegan. He was like, I'm going to reach out to him. I'll be right back. You know, and he like sent this email. Literally, it happened in three days where the RZA was like, yeah, sure. And I was like, what? Because <laughs> I'm from New York, you know, so I grew up with the Wu-Tang Clan. I'm not from Staten Island, but, you know, it was it was crazy. It was crazy. That's so cool. <laughs> My boyfriend was Keep like looking over it. Where is he? 
Is he not going to show his face? What? Oh, the cat? Oh, your boyfriend. Oh, he's in Tennessee. I'm just looking over because um, I keep the patio door open for the good oh. lighting. But I see oh. the cars and the people walking and it just catches my eye. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, is he there? Yeah. <laughs> uh, he would. Oh, my God. I can't. He might actually listen to the podcast. I'm like, I'm not going to tell him. Like, you got to listen to this one. There's information about <laughs> Wu-Tang. <laughs> like, he was, yeah. Yeah, he introduced me to all all that music we grew up together um so he you know i was always so that's that's how i i don't know the rizza yeah, personally yeah. but i'm connected in those circles by way of my graphic design work i i did most of the bad boy albums in the late 90s and uh, a lot of Sony stuff, a lot of Arista stuff, a lot of other people's stuff. Jermaine Dupree. I did Luke's, one of Luke's albums, <laughs> which was, it is what it is, whatever. That's yeah, so that was, that was my first career. So that's why your logo is so cool, <laughs> too. <laughs> I, I don't know. Thank you. I, I threw it together, really. I mean... When I do stuff for myself, I don't do it on the level that I would do it for a client. I really am just trying to like knock it out, get it done. You know, with my You are podcast. your most important client. No, I should. You're right. But I don't take that kind of care with the things that I do. Like my book. I, I did my book in 30 days. You know, oh, I didn't really. What is really, the title of your book? It's called Adding Raw is Easy. And it's on my website. It's on foodslane.com. You can check out the PDF version of that. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's, you know, I took all the pictures. I, I designed it, you know, but I don't really spend as much time on my stuff as I spend on a client stuff because I'm not paying myself. <laughs> you know? yeah, true. I'm just I, uh, doing it. I wrote my book and, um, I did all the, I taught myself in design. I taught myself <laughs> and I, I completely understand. That was one of the biggest pains in the ass thing I ever did in my life. Just trying to get, just like trying to figure out how to put page numbers on the book took me like three oh, yeah. weeks. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, I, it didn't take me long because I know the, you know, the software and I can do it pretty quickly for myself. You know, I can build my own website. I can do my own logos and stuff. Um, yeah. And it's useful. It is, it is a useful skill. I'm glad that's what I built a career in. You know, it's continued to bring many, many wonderful blessings into my life. <laughs> so, you know, it's a trade skill that I will have forever. And I'm really grateful for it for sure. So, well, I am looking at the clock and uh, I got farm shit to do. <laughs> Excuse my French. But um, I really enjoy talking with you. We should totally, you should totally come on my podcast and let me interview you. For sure. And we'll talk about recipes because I think 
it's really, I know for me, I love baking. I love baking. I love making fresh bread. I love baking cookies. I love doing all of that stuff. And I know that I probably shouldn't eat as many baked goods and baked treats that I like to make. But, you know, when you have like an orchard full of pears and you're just like, oh, what am I going to do with all these pears? Like there's only so much pear butter you can stand. Yeah. So you have to make a down pear cake, you know, like cobbler, who doesn't want that? Or, uh, poached pears or pears are so versatile. I love pears. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we'll have, to, we'll have to talk recipes, you know. Yeah. That would be fun. That would be fun. I'll, uh, you know, I'll hit you up as soon as I'm done with training and I know what my schedule is. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, again, the pot, the, the Food Slang podcast will continue. And I'm, uh, I'll throw this out there. I'm open to suggestions. So if there's any topics that you know you want to hear about, things that maybe you've thought about and asked questions about, that's the question I want to throw out to you and your audience. What do you want to know? What ingredients should I cover in season seven? Anything come to you off the top of your head? I was just going to say, I loved the, the food history ones. I love those. And I loved the, the first one about kale, which I had always kind of sort of known this i'd like the story you know that you hear when you're working in the kitchen is basically kale this fucking garnish how is it this you know how is it what it is today like we used to just fucking put it on the plate to like yeah. put tomatoes and the onions on for like someone's burgers you know just to dress up the plate and all of a sudden it became like this superstar so when you told that story i was that's really the one that it hooked me because usually if i'm looking at someone's podcast i'll look at the first one they've done first and then i'll do the most recent one and i because i want to see how they've evolved and you know what what their style's like and stuff like that so i feel like that's a good way to do it but then yeah. i watched i listened to that one i listened to the top one i listened to like five other ones and I've been <laughs> listening. I was just in the middle of uh, Yo Soy Peaches and <laughs> so I gotta go back to that one. <laughs> it's just crazy. I've learned so much doing this podcast, but you know, there, like I said, I, I don't think that there's any shortage of ingredients or topics. I've just kind of exhausted a lot of them. I think another one that was really eye-opening for me was the spices one, turmeric. Um, it's just a shame, I you know, for, for chefs and for people, home cooks and people who, you know, use spices, you know, the majority of our spices are imported from all over the world and it is absolutely diabolical. You know, it's diabolical. That's all I'm going to say. I'm not going to spoil it. No spoiler alert here. You're going to have to go listen to it um, because it, it's, it's just a travesty. And, and when you think about like our health and our well-being, you know, you want to people, people have been eating turmeric in the last decade, right? As a health supplement. Okay. The problem with that is that it's contaminated. 
course it is. <laughs> of course it is. I don't even, that's one of the it's ones I like, I don't really like too much. No. Unless you're eating fresh turmeric, yeah. it's contaminated. And that is a problem. And you don't realize it. If you go to Starbucks or you go to your favorite coffee shop and you're like, oh, I'll have a turmeric latte. Or I'll have this turmeric salad dressing. You have no idea the source of that turmeric. Well, even the, um, you know, oregano, which I found out I'm pronouncing it wrong, but I'm going to continue to pronounce it wrong. <laughs> Apparently it's oregano. oregano, but it just sounds too fancy for me. <laughs> yeah. But um, I forgot which co- which country was growing it, but it was like, they grew like 15 tons of it a year, but they exported 19 tons a year. So they were like filling it with like strawberry leaves and like different, you know, leaves that. That happens to so much of our food. The olive oil episode, the honey fraud. I mean, wine. We haven't even gotten to wine and coffee on my podcast yet either. You know, it's it's just diabolical. Like I said, there's just so much we could talk about, but I'm open to suggestions. So if you have something that you personally or specifically want me to cover, I will dedicate that episode to you. Thank you. I'm going to think about it. Yeah. Hit me up. Hit me up on the email and let me know. Let me know soon though, because I need to start thinking about episodes in season seven what we're going to do but it it may it may transform into a three episodes a month instead of four episodes a month like every 10 days you know i just can't handle the weekly podcast right now i mean they're worth the wait that's what i say oh thanks awesome awesome all right guys thank you so much for listening to chef grace's place and don't forget to subscribe to food slaying and buy her a coffee (laughs) buy us coffee (laughs) and uh, come on and uh you know check out the patreon i also started a patreon i'm still working um and i'm looking into other forms of subscription stuff and all that kind of podcasting stuff um So if I find anything good, I'll be sure to let you know. (laughs) Please do. And, you know, you keep up the good work, too. Thanks for reaching out. I am subscribing to your YouTube channel so that I can stay informed about everything that you're up to. I wish you all the best. I'm certainly open to doing this again sometime soon. And I'm really grateful. Thanks for taking some time to ask me some questions. (laughs) I appreciate that. Yeah. All right. Bye, Grace. Bye.